Power Users, Episode 6, Setting Up a New Map. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with my co-host, David Sparks. How are you doing, David? I am doing fantastic, Katie. It's good. We are uh, coming off of a a nice, long weekend. Not looking forward to going back to work tomorrow, but I figured we probably better go ahead and get another podcast out, because you know how life can get crazy, so better do it now while we can. Yes. This week, we're going to talk about something that I think is very near and dear to both of our hearts, and that is setting up a new Mac. And it should be a topic that's fairly fresh on our minds because we both have done it within the last month or so. Yeah, I uh, I went first. I got rid of my MacBook Air and got a MacBook about uh, three weeks before they came out with the MacBook Pro. Yeah, it's tough. Which means I had a better computer than you for exactly three weeks. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'm loving my new MacBook Pro, which is almost identical form factor to your 13-inch MacBook. That unibody is it's, – it's probably the best Mac I've ever owned. Well, I'm enjoying mine too, and I enjoyed setting it up. I also do a lot of setups for friends and – and my own iMac at home, and I thought this was a great idea you had to do this show, so let's get started. Cool. I guess the the first thing you have to decide is what kind of experience do you want on your Mac? Do you want it to be identical to your Mac experience on your old Mac, but just on a newer, faster machine? And that's kind of what I tend to do, because I've got a system set with files and folder structures and a look and feel that I'm very used to and comfortable with on my Mac. But I've also heard a lot of other people who say, hey, this is a new Mac, new experience, new personality. You know, I want this to be a different looking and feeling Mac than my old Mac out of the box. I think also it has something to do with your background. For switchers, a lot of times you just think that you have to nuke and pave every time you get a new computer. And old time Mac folks know that you don't have to. The type of experience you want is going to be something you decide first when you decide how to set up a new Mac. And then the other thing is, how clean of a start do you want? Even if you want the same look, feel, and experience of your old Mac, do you want to take the time to manually reinstall everything? Do you want to clear out some cruft? Do you want to take a more middle road and restore some of your settings, but restart others from scratch? So there are a bunch of different ways to go. David, do you have any preferences on on which way you tend to lean or... Yeah, I, usually with a new Mac, I just start over. And uh, maybe what we should do is just explain the the overview, you know, the, the two or three different ways that's generally done, and then go down to the detail as to preparing for the switch. Okay. So the first one is, oh, I guess you call them nuke and pave. You just start over. You don't do a migration assistant. You just start installing apps, and then you copy over your data, which is the way you probably do it on a PC, and, and that's the way I generally do it with a new Mac. The second is the more mid-level approach, which is what I tend to do. So we should have some good discussion about both topics, which is where you start with a fresh uh, OS as it comes out of the box, and then I migrate over all of my user data and settings, but then reinstall my apps from scratch. And that makes a lot more sense than what I do, but I can't help myself. And then there's another way to do it where you uh, just do a complete migration and bring the entire system in using Migration Assistant, and you spend very little time, and you're up and running uh, very quickly. Right. That's kind of the quick and dirty, bring everything from the old Mac to the new Mac, and boom, everything's the same. So regardless of what method you use, there's going to be some prep work that I suggest people do, um, 
probably even before they buy their new Mac and definitely before the new Mac arrives if it's something that you're not picking up locally in a store. And the first step is if this is the first time you've upgraded in a while, you need to make sure that all of your software is going to run on your new Mac. I do a lot of work with local Apple users groups, which um, tend to be more beginner and novice users who don't update their Mac nearly as frequently as we do. They're still running PowerPC machines. Some people are still running uh, maybe not necessarily OS 9, but definitely using Classic quite a bit. And obviously, if you're buying a new Mac, you're getting something with an Intel chip. So automatically out the window goes anything that runs Classic. Yeah, and I think this transition to Intel is still relevant and worth, worthy of discussion. If you're buying a new machine, it's very likely your old machine was not Intel. And as a result, some of the applications you've got on your old machine are not built for Intel, or they're built for both. And bringing them over blindly may actually cause more trouble than it helps. Which is one of the big reasons, especially if you're making a major transition from a PowerPC to an, to an Intel-based Mac, that you probably do want, want to do one of the more comprehensive methods rather than just a straight uh, full migration or clone over from one Mac to the other. The other thing is there's a lot of software out there that isn't necessarily officially supported anymore, and I know one favorite of the Mac community is AppleWorks. I run into so many people who are still running AppleWorks and really quite dependent on AppleWorks. Are you familiar with AppleWorks, which was formerly ClarisWorks? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I used to use it in the old days. Uh, but the, uh, the time I came back to the Macintosh, it was pretty much dead already, although it was still supported so I never got into it again, but I know there's a lot of users that, that rely upon it and have not switched over to iWork. So this is probably a good time to start looking at some of those applications, although I believe there is a version of AppleWorks that will run on the newest Intel Macs. You have to wonder how well it's going to run and how well some of your data is going to transition over. And with Pages, it's really easy to get a lot of your data out of AppleWorks. And pretty much between uh, Pages and Bento, if you use any of the database functions, or pages, numbers, and bento, you can pretty much get most of your data out of these applications. So before you start, you may want to do a survey of your applications folder. What are your mission-critical apps? What are you using? And then go take a look and see whether they're going to run on your new Mac and what updates are available, whether these are free updates, whether these are paid updates. Because especially if you're going to have to go out and buy a lot of new software, you really need to kind of count that into the overall price of purchase and ownership of this new Mac. It's also a good time to take a look at the stuff you've accumulated in your applications folder and see how much of it you've really started and how much you've really used. Um, I find that, especially because of the work I do in the Mac community, I, I accumulate applications in my uh, applications folder like Locus. And uh, it helps me once in a while, maybe every year or two, to go through and look at the stuff that I haven't started in a year and, and just get rid of it. And uh, So you make a list of what it is, what do you really need once you get the new Mac rolling, and maybe we'll talk about those, those key apps that we put on when we start up a new Mac. Uh, Katie, what do you do in terms of setting up your applications when you get to the, get the new Mac going? Do you put all your apps on, or do you just put the ones you need? I have a general, typically what I do if I'm going from an old Mac to a new Mac is I kind of have a side-by-side -side comparison of my old Mac's application folder and my new Mac's application folder. And there are certain programs that I know that I'm going to have to run off the bat. You know, one password is the first thing that gets installed on my Mac. Launch bar is the second. And the only reason that's in that order is because one password stores all my license keys and serial numbers, and I need that in order to 
uh, register launch bar and all the other apps that I, I sign on. So there's a, there's a core set of programs that I know I'm going to install, um, including the, the Apple Suites, iLife, iWork, um, maybe, maybe not Microsoft Office, maybe, maybe not the entire Adobe Suite, but certain pro- things that I know I'm going to install. So once I get a, a certain base level of functionality up and running so that I know I'm not going to stop my productivity at any given moment because I have to have an app installed, then those apps that I don't use very often, I tend to wait to install until I actually have a need for them and find that some of them I never install. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I do, too, is I, I shoot a screenshot of the applications folder on the old machine and just keep it around. And when I start the new machine, I put a couple apps on, and maybe later in the outline I'll go through which ones I put on, but I don't put that many on. And then I just start loading them as I need them. And uh, it, it kind of works good for me that way. And you don't spend you know gobs and gobs of time installing applications that you may not even start up for six months. You had talked about one uh, password, and I think that's probably where we go next with this when you're doing your prep work. You've already go got a list of applications that you know you're probably going to install or you're going to need to install. So before your Mac even arrives at your place, it's probably a good idea to go through and make sure that you have all the appropriate licenses and that you have all the appropriate install CDs for these applications. And I'll tell you, one of the things that was interesting is I realized how few applications I actually install from CDs or DVDs now. Most of them are downloads from the Internet. Yeah, and one of the best ways to do that, I think Katie and I both use, is 1Password, which does a whole lot more than keeping track of your license codes, but it also does that very well. Um, in fact, have you used the new 3.0 version yet? I haven't used the 3.0 version. Ooh. Apparently, I'm not in their beta group. Yeah, it, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting when it comes out. It's, it's, it's much better. But anyway, so you have one password, and that's how I keep everything together. But you don't need to spend money and buy an application to do that. You can put it in a text file. You can have a smart mail folder or, or a dumb mail folder and just drag in your registrations when you get them. Um, another way you can do it is you can save those emails with those uh, license codes as a PDF to a folder somewhere in your documents folder. Uh, you can put it in your Dropbox. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can organize them. And there are also some other excellent um, license management applications out there I know a lot of people like. Uh, but I like 1Password because it does another thing really well. It manages my passwords, and having one app instead of two always makes sense to me. All right. For the longest time, I just stored all of my license numbers and keys in a um, in an Excel and now a numbers database that had you know the name of the app, the name that I registered it to, if it was registered to a name or registered to an email address, because the formatting is different for a lot of different developers, you know, the serial number and any other miscellaneous information I needed. But I'm finding one password, you can customize the fields and you can also include download leaks. And this is where I got the file, um, which makes it really easy because one of the things I do before I get a new Mac is probably the day or two before the new Mac is supposed to arrive, because I want to make sure I have the most recent versions um, I'll spend an hour or so going through my applications folder and then going on a website like Mac Update or Version Tracker and downloading the DMG files of the most recent versions of all of those applications. And I found that just taking that time to download these files, some of them are big, some of them are little, um, but you can do it easily while you're watching TV or doing something else. And having all of those installers in a folder that I can move over to my new Mac makes the install process of all these applications so much easier. Okay, can I go off on a little bit of a tangent here? Go for it. 
uh, I'm going to tell you about David's magic install disk. Okay. So I figured this out a couple years ago. If you want to set up a lot of Macs, which I always seem to be doing for people, uh, that one of the smartest things you can do is have your own little magic disk of all your install images. And there's two ways you do that. Number one is your downloaded software, which is how most people get software these days. And uh, I have a Hazel script. Remember Hazel? We talked about that in a few shows ago. Uh, so I take this Hazel script, and it, it scans my downloads folder. And whenever it sees a DMG file, it copies it over to a folder I have on an external drive called install disks. That's so efficient. Yeah, and it does it automatically. You don't even have to think about it. And it's always bringing the most current version. When the Omni Outliner version you know, 3.0.2.5 comes out and I put it into my downloads folder, it automatically copies that over. If it's an application where they don't add version numbers to the, to the name, it, it prompts me to overwrite the old version, which I always do because I'm I just want the most recent version on there anyway. And it keeps this running lists of applications, and they're as new as the last time I upgraded any application. So that's part one. But also in my Magic install uh, folder, I have another subfolder called Disk Images. And the way you do that is you take the actual disks, you know, where you have a DVD or a CD for an application, and you make images of them in that folder. So you don't need the physical media anymore. And the way you do that is you open up Disk Utility, which is built into OS X, and you put a CD in it. And the CD will show up on the left-hand column. And then you can click, um, once it does, you just click on the actual name of the CD. So if I put one in there and it says Omni Outliner Pro, and I click on that under the CD image in Disk Utility, uh, on the top of the um, application, there's an icon that says New Image, and you click the New Image button. And you'll see a dialog open up, and you direct it to your to your subfolder that you're keeping disk images in. And there's two ways you can set the format. And if you look at the dialog box as you listen to this, it's obvious. Um, you can either encrypt it, or you uh, or you can have an image format button. So the first thing is the image button. It can either be compressed or read only. I always make that read only because I don't want it to compress. And then you can encrypt it with 128.256 or no encryption, and I use no encryption. So my setting is read-only, no encryption, and I click go. And uh, then I walk away from the computer, and depending on how much data is on the CD or DVD, at some point in the next five minutes or hour, it's going to have a complete disk image saved to that, to that magic folder. Are you with me so far? That's very clever. Yeah, so I do that for all of my CDs. I do it for OS X install disks. I do it for, like, um, uh, Logic. You know, I own a copy of Logic, and it's got a bunch of disks, so I rip them all. And I've got all these things on this external drive. And when I need to set up a new Mac or go to a friend's house and set up a new Mac, I just yank this drive. It's a little portable USB drive, 250 gigs, and I plug it into the back. And then I make a folder on the desktop, and I copy over the, the DMG files and the disk image files. And um, then I can do all the install without having to access any media or even go on the Internet. Now, what do you do? Uh, two questions about this. What do you do about duplicates? Um, so that if you've got you know, Firefox version 3.1.2 and Firefox version 3.5, because they're not, those disk images probably aren't going to be named the same thing, so they're not going to overwrite each other. Yeah. And question two is how does it handle 
Uh, okay, three questions I lined. How does it handle multi DVD series? If you just launch DVD, if it says insert DVD two, you launch image two and it proceeds. That's the coolest part. For for instance, Logic has a lot of data files, and when I installed it on my MacBook, I didn't want all of the data, but I did want some of the external drives. So I picked an installation, and I knew the data I wanted was on certain extra disks. So I uh, mounted all of those onto the desktop of my MacBook. So I mounted them all at once, and it took up a bunch of drive space because you've got these huge disk images. And that took, you know, about I think about 15 or 20 minutes for them to complete the mounting process. But all that data is on your computer, and it's mounted on your desktop. So then when you click Go to install Logic, you just walk away from the computer, you know, and have a popsicle with the kids because when it needs the next disk, it's going to see it's already mounted and automatically access it. You don't, the process doesn't stop. That's very, very cool. Yeah, a friend of mine who, uh, who actually taught me that was an Apple genius, and he had a little drive, and he kept you know, versions of OS X from like 10.2 through the most current one, as well as some other important programs he used. So whenever he was diagnosing a computer or he needed to install an older version of OS X on something, he had everything he needed right there. And as soon as I saw it, I was, I was sold. And I had an extra drive laying around. And it doesn't take that long if you just make a stack of all the, of the installation CDs that you own and just start loading them in, just like you're loading your iTunes. You know, I used to do it every morning on the way out to work. I'd put another disk in, and in the process of a couple of weeks, I had everything imaged. Wow. Now, you can install OS X from a, um, from a disk image? Well, you know, that's I've ripped them. I've never actually installed it from a disk image because when I do need to install the disk, it's usually because something went bad and I need to just start over. Right. Uh, but this genius was doing it, so I assume you can. I wonder if it has to be a bootable, um, a bootable external hard drive then. That's an interesting question, and uh, I'll look into it a little deeper. Maybe I'll do an article on it at some point. But the 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 takeaway is you get this little drive that you can stick in your bag and it's got all the install you need. And it's very nice to do custom installs when you're setting up a machine because you can just drag the applications that you want out. Like uh, I'm setting up a, I set up a machine for a friend of mine who's a college student and I drug out uh, Omni Outliner because I think it's a great application for a college student and then, you know, sent her to the site to buy a license. But because I just had the image, I got her started on it. Right. Very cool. And, of course, we should make clear, sending people to appropriate places to get licenses, it's not like you're using this as a method to pirate software or anything like that. And that's oh, no, certainly you, you not what we're advocating. I'm a, I agree. Software yeah. developers need to be paid because the people who got applications on my disk have great applications. I want them to get paid. But even then, this is not a way to pirate software because it doesn't work. You're just putting the image. It's just like if you had installed it off the Internet. Right. You, you still, still need the license key. Yeah. Now we've talked a lot about loading Mac programs, and I, I love your image. I'm actually going to go get a little external hard drive. I've got one in the closet that needs a case, so that's going to be my new Magic uh, install CD or uh, yeah. hard drive. What about Windows? Because a lot of us on Intel Macs are now loading Windows, whether it be in Boot Camp or virtualized somewhere, um, like in Parallels or VMware. Yeah. Well, I think that you know. There's a couple phases we're talking about. Right now, we're kind of in the phase where your new Mac is in the mail. and when the new, But when it shows up, you have to make a decision before you get started if you're going to be uh, using boot camp. Right. And if you do that, that's going to change the way you set things up. But let, let's put that on hold for just a second because I'm looking at your outline here. You had some really good ideas about what to do while, while it's still in the mail. 
Um, you had put in there about RAM upgrades and hard drive upgrades. Right. Now, I think it's it's probably no secret that Apple is probably one of the worst places to buy RAM um, if, in terms of a cost. So I almost always – I mean, if I could buy a Mac with no RAM and get a discount, I would definitely do that every time because um, I tend to buy most of my RAM from Otherworld Computing or Crucial. And I usually time it so that – I know exactly what I need, but I want to make sure that my RAM arrives before my new Mac because, of course, I'm going to want to run my Mac as fast as possible out of the box. And I tend to do all those upgrades beforehand. The other time, um, hard drives are kind of if, – if you're building to order your new Mac on the Apple Store, you got to price them out because Apple's prices on hard drives aren't nearly as bad as they are on RAM. However, when I got this new 13-inch MacBook Pro, the only options they had available were 5400 RPM drives. And I knew from previous experience that a 7200 RPM drive was going to give me a much faster experience. It may negatively impact my battery life. It may negatively impact some heat, but I wanted a faster drive in there. And in my case, I happen to already have a large 7200 RPM drive that was fairly new. So in my case, I didn't have to buy that. Uh, but you do want to make sure that if you are going to do any kind of on-your-own upgrades of your Mac, not only that you have the proper equipment uh, on order that is compatible with your Mac, but also make sure that you've done a little research to make sure that you have the proper tools. Because I know I had my, my trusty T8 and my trusty Phillips size zero screwdriver, which I, is all I've ever needed on my, my previous MacBook, but on my new MacBook it was a T6 that I needed to unscrew some screws inside. And the last thing you want to do, and I've done this before, is have your Mac lying open on the kitchen table while you have to make a run to the hardware store to get a new screwdriver. I had the exact same thing happen to me uh, with my Mac because I put an SSD drive in my new Mac. And uh, I had every size screwdriver I needed except the one that they're using in the new uh, Unibody MacBook. and Which is a I very teeny tiny Phillips. Yeah, and I had this beautiful SSD drive that I was just, you know, and dying to put in because I can't even run the Mac until it's in there because I have to get the whole thing set up. And it's, you know, 10 o'clock at night. And, um, you know, it was, I think, $3 at Home Depot to buy the right screwdriver the next morning. But I, I did wait. It was tough, though. It was mm. really tough. You know, I, but I want to make a comment on the RAM pricing. They've gotten better with the RAM pricing. Um, the last time I bought an iMac, I wanted to get it upgraded from 2 to 4 and I'm friends with the guys at the Apple store and, you know, I'm honest with them. I said, look, I'm not going to buy your RAM. It's too expensive. And he says, well, wait a sec. You might want to check because they gave me a credit for the RAM they took out. And it ended up being about, I think, 80 bucks to get 44 gigs of RAM in my iMac. And that's about what it would have cost me from Crucial. Um, I didn't get to keep the old RAM because they took it, but it, they've gotten better. So Yeah, they've you, gotten better. And if the cost is close... I would probably go with Apple RAM over a third-party RAM just because, you know, if there are ever any issues, Apple Care loves to blame whoever is not Apple's specific product than there. You know, they're going to try to blame the RAM because you got it from a third-party place. Now, I've never personally had a problem with OWC or Crucial RAM, um, but usually I also, and here's another tip, if I'm going to upgrade the RAM, uh, or I'm going to upgrade the hard drive because you usually get so little back in resale. I know OWC has resale programs. If you send them back your RAM, they'll give you 10 or 20 bucks off. I usually keep that Apple RAM and or, and or that Apple hard drive that I pull out um, and save it because I, I know that if I ever have to send my computer off to Apple Care, um, 
they may not necessarily send me my computer back. And I've had it been the case where I had to send an almost brand new Mac back to Apple Care because it had a failure almost out of the box. And this was a couple of years ago when I had just installed, you know, uh, a huge upgrade of RAM all the way up to 512. And they had these really expensive two 256 chips in my Mac that um, when they sent me a brand new Mac to replace the faulty one, of course, didn't come with my new memory chips. And the guy at Apple was actually nice enough to pull the RAM out of my old Mac and send it back to me. But usually if you have to send your Mac off, I sometimes put the old RAM back in, especially if I'm mailing it off as opposed to the local Apple store. Yeah, I also think that it helps to have the original RAM in particular because sometimes they'll claim that it's bad RAM when you have a problem with your machine. And they'll right. say, oh, you've got this external RAM. You must have junk. And if you had the Apple RAM, that wouldn't be a problem. And so I've had that situation where I took out the replaced RAM, put the original RAM back in so just to demonstrate. Yeah. Nope, yeah, it's still, still, still broken. <laughs> yeah, so I've never sent it back or sold it just because of that. But in the case of the iMac, since it was there, RAM. They have taken that argument away from them if there ever is a problem. Right. So you got the. So you've got your 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 machine in the mail. You've ordered whatever upgrades you're doing to your machine, and you've made sure you've got the right tools. And what do you do next? Well, you probably should start giving some consideration as to how you're going to transfer your data over. Um, you know, you and I tend to be big planners, and I of course had this whole plan of how I was going to transfer data from my old Mac to my new Mac. And one of the things that I realized is my new MacBook Pro only has a FireWire 800 drive, or excuse me, a FireWire 800 port, whereas my old MacBook had a FireWire 400 port. So if this new Mac had come out of the box, there would have been no way for me to get data off the old Mac directly onto the new Mac unless I did some kind of network connection because all of my hard drives I have were FireWire 400 only. And the ports didn't fit, so I couldn't do target disk mode. Um, so thankfully, I, I gave that some thought beforehand and was able to order a FireWire 400 to FireWire 800 crossover cable that allowed me to do the transfer directly from one Mac to the other. And I think that cable, I buy a lot of my cables from monoprice.com, you know, was about four bucks. And that yeah. would have been a big bummer if I had gotten there and realized, oh my goodness, I have no way to get my data across. And either had to end up running to the Apple store, which, you know, fortunately it's close enough I can do, but the same cable at the Apple store is going to cost you a heck of a lot more. Yeah, and that's for doing migration assistant. And uh, you said the, the Ethernet cable can do it as well, correct? The Ethernet cable can, can do it, although not as fast. So you do, most people have a spare Ethernet cable lying around or an Ethernet cable that they can temporarily pull out of something. Okay, what else did you uh, get in preparation for that Mac in the mail? Uh, you know, one of the things I did that I actually didn't put in our outline is I downloaded the user manual for my Mac before it arrived. Um, number one, because it gave me all of the information I needed about the tools that I would need to replace the hard drive and the RAM. Um, and also because it kind of gave me something to flip through and, and look at in anticipation of the new Mac arriving. <laughs> See, if I had done that, I would have had the right size screwdriver and not been banging my head against the wall at 10 o'clock at night. Right. Oh, well. Another point is, as the new Mac is winging its way to you, is you want to make sure you've got your online sync data sorted out. And uh, your mobile me and your Dropbox and whatever online syncing, you want to have all that updated. Because for me, that's a big deal when the new machine gets there. Right. And I also like to tell people, 
to make sure that your old Mac, even though you're probably replacing it for a reason, is in pretty good working condition. If you've got any kind of wacky bugs or wacky issues going on that you can't quite identify, now's probably a good time to troubleshoot because if it's a data corruption or one of those types of issues, you don't want to inadvertently bring your old problems to your new Mac by bringing that issue over. Uh, I think, you know, speaking of the old Mac, a lot of listeners and Mac users are using Time Capsule and Time Machine backups. Uh, but even if you use that, if you can afford it or swing it and you have an extra drive, uh, I highly recommend doing a super duper or carbon, clop, car, carbon copy cloner backup of the entire drive. And the reason is you can access all the individual data there. So as you know, you're about to get your new Mac. Why not just make a complete image of your current Mac? And also, if you can, that's something that's probably better to do on a Firewire drive rather than a USB drive because, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I do not believe Migration Assistant works over USB. It's either Firewire or Ethernet. I've only used uh, Migration Assistant over Ethernet. And usually when I set up a new Mac, as we'll talk about later, I just kind of start over anyway. But having the data without having to you know, go through a specific application like Time Machine is very helpful. And that's one time when you know you're going to need it. So if you can swing it, please make a full image backup. And if you can, make one on a hard drive that's not your regular backup drive. Uh, In my case, sitting in the closet, it's only been a couple of weeks since I've got this new Mac. I have a full clone backup of my old Mac as it was. Uh, the, The absolute last thing I did before I shut my old Mac down was to make a clone backup because if there was anything that I forgot to transfer or anything wacky happened, I know that I can go back and I try to keep it for at least a month, that old clone backup, um, just to make sure I can always go back if I need to to get something. You know, it's scary how much you and I are alike sometimes. <laughs> I do that too. Hey, hard drives are cheap. Yeah. the uh, <laughs> And I just, found, I just bumped into it. The, um, the Icon Factory makes excellent icons. And they make some of them that are time-limited. Now, I don't know if you remember, about three or four months ago, one of the uh, Microsoft marketing dudes uh, said that the reason Apple computers cost so much is because they have unicorn tears in them. Oh. Do you remember that? Yeah. It was really funny. So uh, the Icon Factory made unicorn tears <laughs> icons. And I, I just thought it was so funny that I downloaded the icon and I got in the habit of using it for my hard drive icon on my, uh, on my Mac. And I realized just recently that I don't have it on my new MacBook because I didn't transfer that over for some reason or another. And, uh, and sure enough, went and got the carbon copy cloner image of my old MacBook Air and pulled the unicorn tears right off that hard drive. Right. Back it, in shape. Because, because Icon Factory only had it up for a month. You can't get it anymore. No matter how hard you try, you are going to find there's going to be one or two things that you end up having to go back and get. And that's why I keep it, like I said, for about a month, because I figure if I haven't needed anything for a month, I can probably live without it. Yeah. And then when you're done after that month, then you can turn it into your magic install disk. There you go. Yeah. Now, there are a couple of things that I do once the new Mac arrives, but before I shut down my old Mac, because I don't want to do all of this prep work on my old Mac and then there have, you know, be a week or three or four days lag time between my old Mac and my new Mac because then all of your stuff is out of date automatically. So one thing I do while my old Mac is sitting there and my new Mac is sitting on the table next to it is I do that last minute clone backup 
I do that last minute sync to make sure that um, my dot Mac or excuse me, my mobile me is synced. All of my iPods are synced. All of my iPhones are synced. Um, my Dropboxes are synced. Uh, my I have Mosey for online backup. That that's got the most recent backup. So I go through and I do one last final sync of everything before I turn the computer off. Also, there's some licensing things that you probably need to look at before you transfer them from your old Mac to your new Mac. Things like iTunes. You probably want to deauthorize your iTunes account so that you don't burn up one of your authorizations from your old Mac to your new Mac and have this old Mac authorized that you don't need. Same thing with your Audible account if you have one. The Adobe Suite is also something that before you shut down that old Mac, you need to go through the process. They have a, a transfer license menu um, in all of their applications or transfer activation that communicates with the Adobe servers, deactivates the license on your old Mac so that you can then reactivate it on your new Mac. Otherwise, you've got licensing issues and you've got to call up people and explain to them that, you know, I'm, I'm not using this on multiple computers. I just got a new Mac. This is why I need to transfer it or I didn't get a chance to transfer it. Yeah, and sometimes I've heard of that problem with Microsoft Office, although I've never experienced it. Right. But I've had people write, to me complaining that when they got the new Mac, Microsoft wouldn't let them license Office because they had already used it on their old Mac. Um, I think, just to go back and remind everyone, I think the iTunes point was a very good one, and a lot of people miss that. I've, I've missed it several times and actually had to go back, thankfully, because I still had my old Mac and deauthorized the iTunes on my old Mac. As a complete aside, it has nothing to do with this topic. If you ever send your Mac in and you think there's any possibility they're going to replace your logic board... Do the same thing I on all those apps. Yeah, I typically deauthorize. You know, before I send my Mac, I'll deauthorize all those things anyway. Because you never know; they may just give you a new Mac. They may give you a new hard drive. You never know when you send your Mac off. No, you're you're more experienced with migration assistant than I am. I've used it, I think, three times, and it's worked fine. But but you're the migration assistant pro of this show, so let's hear it. Okay, so you're sitting here. You've got your old Mac. You've got your new Mac. You've done all of your prep work. You're ready to shut down your old Mac and never, ever use it again. The last thing you need to do is transfer your data from your old Mac to your new Mac. So for this, I usually clear off my desk so that I can have the old Mac and the new Mac sitting side by side. And if you've got Firewire on both of your Macs, which I think now that they've gotten rid of the unibody MacBooks, I think every Mac now has some kind of Firewire port although there were a couple of generations of MacBooks that probably didn't have a FireWire port, but most Macs now have a FireWire port. So I put one Mac on one side, one Mac on the other side, power on the new Mac for the first time, and if you've ever done a clean install of OS X or powered on a new Mac, you get that lovely startup screen with that heavenly music that welcomes you to your new Mac and runs you through the process of setting up your old Mac. And After, did you know that they used Unicorn Tears to make that animation? I'm sure. I'm sure okay. they did. And before you actually get to the step of creating a new user account, one of the last questions it will ask you is, do you have data or do you, I think it phrases it, do you have an old Mac that you want to transfer data from? And the key to this is it doesn't have to be an old Mac. If you have an old Mac, that's great. And you can set them side by side. That works. However, if you have an exact clone backup of your old Mac, super duper carbon copy cloner, if you plug that in via FireWire, it will recognize that as though it were an old Mac. So you don't necessarily have to have the two machines sitting side by side. 
So it, we all know how to boot up and target disk mode. And if you don't, it, it bring, walks you through the instructions. It tells you to plug the FireWire cables in between the two Macs and start up the old Mac by hitting the power key and then holding down the T key while it starts up. Your old Mac will flash a FireWire logo. Your new Mac will spin and it will recognize, okay, I'm now attached to a new Mac. Yeah, and it's really that easy. It really is. It I, really. I did it myself a couple times, and I kept waiting for something else to be required, and it didn't. The next thing you have to do is go make a cup of tea, right? And go watch some baseball or do something fun, and then come back in an hour or two, and your Mac is ready to go. Well, this is the step where you do have to make some decisions, and we're going to go over what the decisions are here, and then we'll talk a little more about the consequences of those decisions. Maybe not consequences. That's a bad word. Um, a little bit later. But you can use Migration Assistant to transfer user accounts, applications, networks and computer settings, files, and volumes. So think about what you want to transfer. If you just, I personally transfer my user account and my network and computer settings. I do not transfer applications, files, or volumes. If you want to transfer everything, this is where you're going to go through and check all the boxes. So be very careful and pay attention to what you're checking for it to transfer. If you've got multiple users on your Mac, you need to make sure that you check multiple user accounts to transfer over. Um, maybe you want them all. Maybe you only want some of them. So pay pretty close attention on this Migration Assistant screen to tell you exactly what you want to trans transfer over. And then once it gets started, yeah, walk away, go do something else. Now, you did this over Ethernet, right? Yeah. And I've always done it over FireWire, and I transferred about 60 gigabytes worth of data, probably in less than, I walked away so I couldn't quite time it, but less than 45 minutes or so. My assumption would be that the Ethernet would take longer. It took several hours. Okay. But I the, the most recent MacBook, I just set up clean, and uh, I, keep, I keep teasing this, but I'm going to talk about that later. But the thing about Migration Assistant is you can make it as simple or as complex as you want with the checkboxes. But if you really just want your new Mac to work like your old Mac and you don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about it, you check all the boxes. Right. Frankly, I think the people that are subscribing to this podcast, there aren't going to be that many are like that. I think right. a lot of people are going to be want a little more granular control. And I think the problem with checking all the boxes is you bring over all the good and the ugly from the old machine. So you're getting all your data, but if there's any corruption, if there's any problems, you know, you're, you're inheriting those problems with your new machine. Right. And uh, I've always been leery of it because of that. One thing I just want to mention before we get off the topic of Migration Assistant is you can, uh, my preferred method is to either use your original Mac or to use a clone from a FireWire hard drive. You can also use your original Mac through the network connection. But you can also migrate from a time machine backup or a time capsule backup. And this is going to take longer. And especially if you're migrating wirelessly, you just need to go to bed because it's going to take a really long time. Yeah. In fact, just don't do it wirelessly. Yeah, don't, don't do it wirelessly. If you're moving that much data, go over to your time machine and get an Ethernet cable, plug in the back, and plug it in the back of your new machine, and then still go to bed because it's going to take a while. If you do it wirelessly, wirelessly, it could be days, depending on how much data you're moving. And the thing to keep in mind is that transferring data, although it's a fairly routine task, 
is filled with opportunity for something to go wrong. And um, it, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like doing a uh, surgery. So I would say the less time you're on the table, the less time you're on the heart lung machine, the better. So the faster you can get your data transferred over, um, doing it over a wired versus a wireless connection is going to be less opportunity for things to go wrong. And generally, I would recommend against doing call the boxes migration assistant. And you just had a bad experience with migration assistant, sort of related to that. Without going into the gory details, you want to talk about that just a little bit? I did. I'm not entirely sure whether this was a migration assistant error or whether it was my error because I tend, if it was my error, it came in the part where I was supposed to be paying more attention to where I checked the boxes. But there is an isolated incident that is fairly well reported on the Apple discussion forums that seems to be specific to 13-inch MacBook Pros identical to the one that I have and a specific version of iLife in that if you use Migration Assistant and you migrate certain files or settings over that you – and then apply the iLife 09 update – there was an iLife 09.0.3 update or something like that, you end up with a corruption of the media browser that causes, in my case, every application that accessed the iLife media browser, which was a lot. I mean, it was your uh, screensaver system preference pane, it was your iPhoto, any of your iLife, any of the iApps um, to crash or to malfunction. And I was having a lot of problems until I found out through the use of the console that this was the issue. So sometimes bringing over less is better because, again, the less you bring over, the less chance you have for some kind of corruption or some kind of conflict. Okay. Now let's talk more about your middle ground. Uh, You've checked only certain boxes. You didn't send over app data. What else did you not send? Um, The only thing I sent was the user folder, which – And that was about it. I might have sent over network and settings, but I don't think so because those are pretty quick and easy to set back up yourself. And then you go ahead and and put the other data in yourself and you load your apps yourself. I do. That magic install hard drive is going to come in very handy. The new Mac probably already has certain applications installed. Um, With all new Macs, you've got a copy of iLife. It may or may not be the most recent version. So probably after you've done the migration assistant, the first thing I recommend that you do is to run software update because even out of the box, your Mac may have some software updates out there. I think out of the box, it always has software updates. Not as many as Windows, but it it should. It should almost always have software updates. And I tend to check that software update and run it again and again and again because sometimes you come up with certain updates and then you have to run it again to come up with others. Not as often as with Windows-based machines. Um, but I check the software update until it comes up with nothing. And yeah. that's when I start loading my apps. And then I personally start with the Apple apps. So if iWork came pre-installed, the next thing I installed was – I'm sorry, if iLife came pre-installed, the next thing I installed was Pages. And then I ran software update again because there's probably a whole slew – of other information and other updates that are related to that. And then after that, once you've got all the Apple apps installed, you're probably done with software update for until the next batch of updates comes out. Okay. So now my approach, I, I don't use migration assistant. I rarely use it. And, um, the last few Macs I've set up, I didn't bother with it at all. I am more of the masochistic approach. 
Most, most good Mac users are. I mean, why, why would you want to take the easy way when there's a harder way to do something? <laughs> exactly. But, you know, in a way, I think it's the easier way because it's a completely clean install. I don't bring any data over from the old machine in terms of the system software. And there's a couple things that allow me to do this a lot faster than I used to. And the first is Dropbox. And, you know, as we're talking about, you know, when you get the new Mac, what do you first do? One of the very first things I do is I, I install Dropbox because I want that first Dropbox link to get started immediately. Um, Dropbox has my one password keychain, which has all my software licenses in it. And it also has a lot of my user data. You know, so all the um, documents in my documents folder anymore has very little actual user data in it. Most of it is up on Dropbox. So I get that started right away. And using Dropbox, and also because I'm a MobileMe subscriber, um, between those 1Password, Dropbox, and MobileMe, most of the heavy lifting is done on all of my settings and my key data automatically anymore. I mean, if you just go in MobileMe uh, preference pane and have it sync down you know, your mail accounts, your contacts, your calendars, uh, you know, all that stuff, in very little time, it feels like it's your Mac already. Especially if you're using IMAP for your mail and most of your things are stored on the server. You know, that's one thing I found too is through a lot of these sync services and through using a lot more cloud computing, a lot of my data isn't necessarily only stored on my Mac. Yeah, I mean, the first time you open mail, if you followed our advice and set up an IMAP account, whether it's Gmail or Mail App uh, or a mobile me, you immediately have your your mo- your mailboxes set up your mail downloads that first time you load it it creates the subfolders and if you sync your rules over using the mobile me sync which is pretty pretty slick i have to admit uh, in very short time you're up and rolling um, you still need to install some of your mail add-ons like mail act on and some of those things but that's the the point of the magic install disk you know you just put a folder on your on your desktop and start dragging things over and it's pretty easy for me. I, you know, on, in hindsight, I could actually add a subfolder in my Magic install disk, which is the must-haves, because there are some like some of the mail add-ons, um, uh, Dropbox, One Password, LaunchBar, and that's a couple of the apps that I, I just, you know, Scrivener. <laughs> you know, there's a couple apps that I just must have immediately, and I just drag those over and, and get started with them. But I don't install everything on that Magic install disk. I, I put the stuff that I know I'm going to need, and then I kind of go with it for a while. And sometimes I find that I don't need a lot. Right. Uh, but that's, that's my way of doing it. And it really doesn't take as long as you would think. And the advantage, I think, is when you're done, you don't have any of the corruption of your old machine on your new machine. Now, there are some specific things, and I have set up Macs from scratch like this before, but I will still go into specifically my user library, and there are some things that I will pull out of there. A lot of these things, like your keychains, and if you you use MobileMe, your, your bookmarks and things like that will automatically come over. But there are a lot of things that may not come over. Um, For example, some application preferences, you may or may not want to bring those over because, you know, it's kind of a pain to start from scratch. But then again, you're deciding to start from scratch. But there are a few areas I don't want to start from scratch. For example, um, especially in the type of work that I do that's that's got some terminology that aren't, I don't think, even real words. 
um, but they're words <laughs> that we use nevertheless. I've got a pretty comprehensive um, user dictionary built both in my word processing applications and also in the general Apple dictionary that I use for spelling. So I almost always bring over my, my spelling dictionary. Um, there are some specific fonts that I have or that I've bought through the years that are installed in my user's library fonts folder. Um, and I actually have gone in and color-coded any font that I've bought or anything that's not system-specific and will bring those over as well. So there's some specific items within that library folder that I do bring over. Yeah, the, the fonts folder, which is in, uh, uh, in your hard drive library fonts, uh, anything you put in there becomes a system font, and it doesn't care about subfolders. So you could also just p- prepare a folder in there just called purchased fonts, which is essentially what I've done. And a copy of that's also on my Magic install disk, and it's the same thing. I copy those over. Um, another thing, in addition to the dictionary, which is an excellent idea, is to copy over if you have wallpaper. I mean, I have a separate fo- a wallpaper folder in my a pictures subfolder in my user account, and I always copy that over because I've collected wallpaper over the years that I like to use. So there's a few things you bring over, but generally, um, if you're using cloud-based solutions and you've given some thought to the whole process, it really doesn't take that much work to start from scratch. Yeah, the big debate, I think, for most people will be the application support and the preferences folder. Because it's very convenient to pull over all of your settings and all of your application support and all of your preferences for all of your applications. It's very easy to do that. But at the same time, that's also where a lot of that cruft gets built up. So you may need to, for example, I use RapidWeaver for some of my websites. You may need to, if you don't bring over the RapidWeaver preferences, to re-enter your FTP settings. And there may be applications that have specific things you have to re-enter. Um, and that's kind of a pain the first time you have to do it, especially if you have to go looking for this information. But then again, it does also prepare you for next time to say, okay, I, I need to have this information somewhere and easily accessible so that I can use it. And typically, it's only a pain the first time you use an app that you have to reconfigure things to get it set up back the way that you want or any specific preferences. And, and I think this circles around back, Katie, to your idea about making a clone on an external drive and keeping it for a while because – if you take my you know, nuke and pave solution, you are going to find something missing. Um, right. I've learned uh, through experience, for instance, iWeb is one that you know the data is buried on your computer. And if you don't make the effort to go and pull it over onto the new machine, um, if you're not using uh, Migration Assistant and you do it the way I did, you're going to lose that data. So you've got to have you've got to actually physically copy it into the system preferences, and I think it's the user library to get the iWeb data over, or you lose your website. Uh, same thing with Bento. Bento's data is buried in the um, user. Uh, I'm sorry, the software library. So you, you've got to get that copied over, or you are going to lose a lot of Bento data as well. And I'm sure there's others. So when you take this approach, you really should have a a backup copy that you're willing to hold on to for a while until the first time you load something like iWeb and say, hey, where the heck did my website go? Speaking specifically to some of these, um, for lack of a better word, let's call them databases of data that other applications access, sometimes you have a choice as to where you store that data. Um, For example, in Receipt Wallet, it will normally by default store your receipt library inside your documents folder. Um, 
or if you have Mac Gourmet, which is a recipe application by default, you, you may collect all of these subfolders and they like to store them within your documents folder, um, your YEP database and, and things like that. But a lot of these applications, in fact, I think most of them, you can actually say, no, I, I want you to store your database in this specific place. And I tend to have a folder called databases inside my application folder that I have all those kinds of databases. My Mac Speech Dictation profile is in there, my NeatWorks library, my Receipt Wallet library, my OmniFocus backups, my YEP documents, my text expander groups, all of these little snippets of information that other applications reference. If I can, I make an effort to put them in this database folder. And that's also a great folder to have synced to a Dropbox if you're going through multiple computers so you always have the most updated copies. Yeah, but Bento is one of those exceptions where you don't have any say. That's probably so. true. Although, you know, our friend Don McAllister did show us a, um, a hack in one of his recent episodes that I think we linked to that will show you how to take some of those folders and make hard links to them on Dropbox so that they will work. But you still probably have to move the original data over. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's the way to do it. So uh, we talked a little bit about what software you install. Once you've got everything more or less working, what are the apps that you, you must have when you get started? I think we both agree 1Password is one of the first ones you put up there. And for the obvious reason, as you're installing this new software, you're going to need the license codes and you can pull it out of there. So whatever your license keeper of choice is, uh, that's a good one to have. And also if you start getting into the websites on your, your browser, you'll also need that data. Uh, I think Steve Stanger once told me he just uses a big text file for this process, and that'd be the same kind of thing. You need that file available to you on your Mac because you don't want to be typing out, you know, thirty character strings of random letters in order to get these things rolling. You want to be able to copy and paste that. Yeah. Um, text expander is another one. Um, I use, I always put that up almost immediately because I need it. Uh, what else? I am very quickly, um, LaunchBar is probably one of the first things that I install, as well as Dropbox and Evernote, because those are applications that I use to store and reference other bits of information. Also, Firefox is probably one that I quickly install, because although Safari has gotten much better, there are still some sites that Firefox works better with, depending on what your web browser of choice is. You know, it's probably a good idea to have two web browsers, so usually pretty quickly I'll install that secondary web browser just to make sure I can access everything. What's your primary browser? Is it Firefox or Safari? No, I'm a Safari user. Yeah, me too. I was hoping you were Firefox. It would be fun to have a smackdown on that someday. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, you know, you, you got your key apps, and you know, for everybody it's going to be different, but I think the ones that, that we're talking about are the utility-type apps that you need in order to just make the machine run. And then depending on what your profession or what you use your Mac for, what you the applications you actually need may vary. You know, I like Scrivener, but maybe what you really need is Photoshop or something else. Right. Um, and if you're keeping your serial number database in a numbers document, then iWork needs to be one of the first things that you install. So you've got those running. I think you also need to make sure when you get the new machine going to get that first super duper or carbon carply clone in as soon as possible. I, I, I just feel better uh, the first time when I've got everything just more or less working. I just feel better when I get that first clone made just in I, case something goes wrong. I agree with you so long as you're not cloning over your backup like we discussed. Um, yeah. if, if you only have one backup method, I tend to hold off on that backup 
until you know you've got everything up and running. Because having a backup of a machine that's not fully up and running isn't going to do you a whole lot of good. I totally agree. Oh, okay. Well, I think we've covered, you know, getting this new machine running. Now what? Well, you probably need to figure out what to do with your old Mac, which, quite frankly, could be a story in and of itself. Um, yeah. If you have the ability to hang on to that old Mac, like we said, for a little while, or if it's going to be used in your house and you don't need to repurpose it right away, you know, you can do that in lieu of hanging on to an older hard drive. Um, but I tend to sell most of my older Macs or uh, reuse it within my own house. That's one of the benefits of buying Apple hardware, you know, because they have those unicorn tiers in them, they keep their resale value quite high. And uh, it always feels good kind of helping pay for the new machine with the old machine. But I agree with you. I would not sell it until at least a month after the new one was set up, assuming that you don't have it backed up some other way. Right. If you've got an external drive with with a mirror on it, go ahead and get rid of it as soon as you can. And I know a lot of people fund the purchase of their new Mac through selling their old Mac. And, you know, we could get into a whole debate about, you know, debt and all of that other stuff. Um, I typically would advocate that you don't sell your old Mac and physically get rid of it before your new Mac arrives. Because sometimes the timing doesn't work out exactly. You know, you may think that you have something perfectly planned and then some kind of kink evolves in your system. You know, maybe your Mac gets delayed in customs. Um, maybe FedEx doesn't deliver it and it gets stuck at the storage locker and you can't get to it. Uh, maybe your Mac is DOA and you've got to go back and get a replacement. So although you may want to start working on selling it, I would, wouldn't actually get rid of it until the new Mac arrives. I actually got caught in that trap with my last switch. I, I had a buyer for the MacBook Air before the new MacBook showed up because I bought a, a refurb unit and I was waiting for it to get shipped to me. And the buyer was pretty anxious to get the MacBook Air, so I went ahead and, and got rid of it. So I went about a week without a laptop, and it was really it was really a challenge for me. Um, and I learned a lot about how I can get by on an iPhone alone, which was kind of educational, but that's probably another show as well. Sure. Uh, you know, another point uh, in this setting up a new Mac subject is setting up a friend's Mac. I think there's a separate set of considerations and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are the type of people that do that for folks and I've done it many many times uh, because people around me tend to buy Macs when they see how much I can do with mine and whether it's just friends or family um, many times have I gone over to someone's house with my magic install disc in hand and uh, set them up and there's a couple things I always felt that you should do the first thing is if you're helping out a friend or a family you're probably doing it for free so you've got a little bit of sway over them. And I always tell them, uh, there's no fee to me, except maybe a beer. Or dinner. I tend or to do dinner. a lot of Mac setups for dinner. Okay, but you must have an external drive when I get there, or I'm not going to do it. For backup. And some, exactly. And sometimes I even send them the Amazon link and say, just click here and buy this. And don't, don't ask any questions. And when it shows up, just leave it in the box. And I do that to friends all the time. And at first they seem kind of, of angry. But then when I get there and I set up a, a time machine and I tell them now there's a copy of all their pictures and all their video and all their music. So if something ever goes wrong, they have a backup. They're, they're always happy that they did it. And uh, so I, always, I really strongly recommend that you use that chance to get them to get a backup system going. Right. And if you, especially if you're setting up a new Mac for a friend, there, especially if they're a new Mac user, 
they probably haven't thought this process through to the extent that you have in terms of what their needs are. So I think it's worth having a conversation with them first. What do you use for your word processing? What are the apps that you have to use? Because there's nothing worse than going out and spending a bunch of money on a new computer, getting it home, and realizing that you don't have everything you need to take advantage of it right away. Yeah. And once again, if you have the Magic Install Disk, you can probably get them going. I mean, um, but like Microsoft Office is something that needs to be purchased in advance. I believe they have a 30-day demo that you can try. Oh, do they? Okay. Yeah. Uh, another point is when you're setting up a friend's Mac is in addition to getting a backup system working is for your own benefit because you are going to get the call eventually. Set them up with a name account and set up iChat before you leave. Absolutely. I have set this up on every computer that I have set up, and it does not fail. Within a month, within a week, within a day, I'm using it. And there is nothing cooler than saying, okay, go into the Applications folder, click on the little thing with the bubble that says iChat. Okay, log in. Turn it on. Are you there? Good. Now click the little button that says Accept, and then you're sitting in there controlling their machine. Oh, it's the coolest thing. And that's particularly true for me with switcher friends, people who switch over. And it's usually not problems so much as they kind of, you know, like everyone, you switch to a Mac and it's kind of liberating. All of a sudden you're doing these crazy things in iPhoto and you're making movies and you're doing things that you never thought you could do with a computer. And a lot of times it's they call and say, well, how do I, you know, how do I order a book, you know, out of iPhoto? And I say, oh, just go click on the iChat. I leave it in their, I leave it in their launch uh, bar. And, uh, and then I take over and they always are amazed by that as well. But, you know, it helps them empower them to use the computer for more. Well, and also, while you're setting up this iChat account, make sure that you add yourself to their buddy list. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a uh, pretty good coverage of setting up a new Mac. And I'm sure there are things that we may have missed. So if so, we always do a follow-up section. We're going to follow up in a minute about our word processing show. Uh, so feel free to drop us an email, feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Um, also, comments are turned on if you go to MacPowerUsers.com. I know there's a little discussion going on in our syncing episode I saw in our comments, which is which is great, between uh, different users about how to overcome dirt, uh, specific problems. So you can also leave a comment on our website for all to see. That's one of the most exciting things about this podcast is the community that's starting to arise around it. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about a follow-up for our word processing show. We had a, um interesting email for something that I take for granted, and that is my sighted ability. Um, I know there are a lot of blind people who listen to podcasts because it's a great source of information for the blind. Um, and we had uh, listener Shane write in who told us specifically that he doesn't use Microsoft Word because it does not have adequate support for voiceover. So that's a, an interesting take on something, but yet a very important take that I, I think probably was worth mentioning. That was remarkable to me that Microsoft hasn't done that because the very th- thing we talked about with Word is there the feature bullet. I mean, they have everything in it. How could they not have covered this? That's just amazing to me. Note to Microsoft. But, yeah. Um, another uh, email we got was uh, about an application that I did not even know existed. Uh, uh, listener Mark wrote in about Grapher, and it's built right into OS X. Apparently, Apple bought this 3D graphing application, and you can create formulas in it, and he stated that he uses that, and he copies the formulas out of Grapher and pastes them in the pages, 
which is kind of a little way to get around the formula problem. Yeah, and a free way, too. Yeah, I went and looked it up and started playing with it, and it's actually a pretty neat little 3D graphing program. We also had some uh, recommendations to other word processing applications that uh, we didn't cover. And as we said, we're probably not going to cover every application that does everything on a specific topic on all of our shows. Um, But we did get a recommendation for uh, task paper notes specifically, or task paper uh, is the name of the application, I believe, uh, in terms of doing outlining for creating a novel. Now, yeah. what do you think about this in, with Scrivener? Because I know you, you said that you use Scrivener quite a bit to outline, but we did have one listener who wrote in and said they love Scrivener, but not as an outliner. Yeah, that was listener Gerard. And uh, I went through and took a look at what he was doing, and it's, it's different than the way I set things up. And uh, the way he was using more of a, a hierarchical outline than I use. I do it with nested folders in Scrivener, but I don't think you could go as deep as he did and as obvious as a way as he did with task paper, I thought it was a very good solution for the way he works. I thought it was a good idea. Excellent. Uh, you also are working, um, listener feedback tends to generate more work for us, it seems. But that's okay. We, we like it nonetheless. Uh, we especially like it when it generates more work for other people, like we did with the poor folks at PDF Pen. But Yeah, let's stop it there for a second. PDF Pen came out with a new version, and uh, it fix the problem that uh, our listeners brought brought up with the uh, scripting in apple script yeah, to do so paperless now, workflows yeah so now in pdf pin there is a script uh, command that allows you to look to see if it has finished ocr so you don't have to do that silly uh, sit around for 5 or 10 or 15 seconds waiting for the script to end and start over again and we will be getting a post up with a new and better script that takes advantage of that apple script i just need to get it written and uh, and put it up Interestingly, putting a an Apple script in WordPress doesn't work right. It, no. word, the WordPress formatting screws it up. So I'm actually looking for a way to do that. I may end up just doing it as a PDF image or something and, and just putting the image for people to download. I know that's not as convenient, but it's the best solution I can think of at the moment. So we'll come up with a, a way to put that up, but we're going to update that script. So those of you who want to automate your OCR stuff will have a better script for you shortly. And another follow-up is from the mail uh, show we did. I've got a lot of people sending me emails. Uh, I had talked about how I combine all my email accounts into one single mobile me, and then I send from there, and then I can make it, it look to the receiver that it came from whichever account I wanted to look it came from. And a lot of people are wrapping their head around that and trying to figure out how I did it. I'd written a couple long emails to people trying to explain it, and ultimately I decided I'm just going to publish a screencast on it. So... And the next week or so, a Max Sparky screencast will come out and explain all the details of how to do that. Excellent. It seems to be a very popular thing. I know you did a screen sharing session with me a few weeks before we recorded that show to help me get mine set up. So it's something I think people are very interested in. Yeah. So I think that about uh, wraps up setting up a new Mac. What's next? Launch Bar. I love Launch Bar. Yeah, we're going to go deep on LaunchBar. Uh, we'll talk also about some of the other launching applications and at least make mention of them. I started out as a very serious Quicksilver user. Um, when LaunchBar came out with their most recent beta, I started using it about four or five months ago, and I haven't looked back. So we can talk a little bit about the different launchers, but I think I'd like to spend a lot of time talking about all the neat things you can do with LaunchBar. 
Excellent. I'm, I'm a big launch bar user as well. As you can tell, it's the second thing that I load on all of my new Macs. If you've got questions, who do you call? Feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Yes. Also, if uh, you have questions or comments, you can get us on Twitter. We're MacPowerUsers on Twitter. I also thought we should probably let everybody know that uh, Katie and I also have our own Twitter accounts, and uh, you can follow us. I'm Max Sparky at Twitter, and Katie, what's yours again? I'm MacCore. Yeah, so might as well sign up for us, too. Uh, I, both of us update the Mac Power users account. I wonder if you can tell which one of us is updating it by what we write. Mm, maybe. Know. But uh, you can also follow us individually. Right, and we've gotten a lot of requests from people who love the logo that our friend Darren did for us. Uh, and I don't blame them. It's a great-looking logo. And they want T-shirts. So by popular demand, we have created a Cafe Press store. So you said you wanted them. Go get them. We'll have a link on our website. That website is MacPowerUsers.com. Yeah, it's kind of exciting, really. We'll have to get some shirts uh, before Macworld. We will definitely around. get some shirts before we'll Macworld. We had a couple of people uh, request darker color T-shirts. Um I'm having some issues with Cafe Press and doing a darker color t-shirt because um, even though I've set our image background to transparent, Cafe Press doesn't quite seem to register that. So uh, if you know of better alternatives than Cafe Press or a way to get around that, um, shoot us an email and, and let us know. But um, t-shirts, hats, mugs, pretty much everything that Cafe Press offers, uh, we've got up there. Um, and also, if you do support through Cafe Press, we've kept the markup um, down to a very minimal level. But that is another way of uh, helping to support the show and, and paying some of our hosting fees. And the last point, Katie, is I just want to make public how much I think you're a great person. Oh, well, thank you, David. You're a pretty good we- person yourself. We got a funny email from someone. It was saying, a very re- funny email. <laughs> he said, I really enjoy the show, and it's been great choices. But the last show was the first one where I really decided that you guys actually like each other. <laughs> well, you know, when you decide to do a podcast with someone, usually that's an important prerequisite. <laughs> I thought it, was a, it was a very cute email, and it made me laugh. And I, I just think you're fantastic. I've had such a great time doing this podcast with you. And I love the feedback we're getting from the listeners good and bad and indifferent and uh we're learning lots and hopefully this will just continue to get better and better yeah um meeting david for the first time at MacWorld, i think it was two years ago now yeah. it was my first MacWorld, and um we met the first time at MacWorld. uh we pretty much realized that you know we're both mac geeks we're both lawyers but we have a lot more in common than that so um i think we we try to stay pretty close to our outline and we've actually gotten a lot of positive comments about thanks for not going down different rat holes in the show so we we try to get some of the extra stuff um and keep it out of the the actual show but we we are friendly with each other and do chat and talk about other things other than this very strict outline that we do for our shows yeah and the funny thing is i think we have such neuroses but when we get together it makes it seem normal yes that's makes me feel better exactly Well, happy 4th of July, Katie, and to all the listeners. I know this will come out a little bit late, but I hope everyone had a great holiday, and I look forward to seeing them on the next show. Thanks, everybody.